Hi, I'm Margie Haber. I've been an acting coach for 30 years, helping actors find their personal power and learn to create. Let's face it, all of us need to let go of control, get rid of the straitjacket we call our comfort zone, and remove the walls that prevent us from being vulnerable. It's all about hope. So let's begin this journey together and give ourselves permission to fuck your comfort zone. In the very beginning of this podcast with Denise, there's a little bit of noise that lasts for about five minutes. Embrace that imperfection. Enjoy the podcast. You will love it. What a wonderful day this is for me because I get to have a conversation. I don't like to say the word interview with a very, very close friend of mine of over, what is it, 30 years? At least. At least 30, 40 years. <laughs> Since our children were playing together. Well, yeah, about 30, about 32 years or so, right? At least. Uh, yeah, to this amazing, I, I'm, I'm so honored today, amazing woman, uh, my friend, Rabbi Denise Ager, who is uh, a champion, a champion of so many things. So for my audience, I'm going to give a little introduction, because if I gave an introduction of, of the caliber, we would never get to the actual podcast. You've done so many things. So I will just give uh, everybody a little bit of your amazing life. So Rabbi Denise Ager is an international Jewish leader and social justice activist. She's the founding rabbi of Congregation Kolami, which, by the way, is my temple, Baruch Atoranoi, <laughs> about all I know <laughs> all these years. She's the first openly gay past president of the Central Conference of American Rabbis, which has over 2,300 reform rabbis. So it's no pisha thing. And Denise was also the first woman ever elected as president of the Southern California Board of Rabbis, which has everything, right? Orthodox, conservatives, right. you name it, the whole mishpucha, right? Everybody's there. Our Jewish words are coming out just by being with you. Uh, she's also a three-time author who just co-authored a wonderful book, by the way, I've read it twice, called The Seven Principles of Living Bravely. And we're going to get to all that towards this, the last part of the podcast. And then uh, many, many, many things. You've been honored by so many. I just love the fact that you were honored by Huffington Post. I know Ariana Huffington. And uh, that was quite something for naming her the number one LGBTQ clergy person in America. That's pretty cool. And umpteen awards for social activism. You are a big macha. <laughs> well, I don't know about big macha, but um, you're a macha. I, I tried to make a difference. You have tried. Tried and to make a difference in the world. You have succeeded. I am so happy that at the at this end of your new chapter of your life, when you're retiring from the pulpit, you are spending this time with me. So good to see you. So and great to, to see you. you. Great to speak with you. Let's go back. I, you know, this this um, it's a very casual kind of conversational stuff I'd like to make it and and I always want to know because the, as you will know the name of this uh podcast is fuck your comfort zone and you have done so much of that through your life and I'd love to start and it's a very authentic honest outing of oneself kind of a thing so other people can feel that they've been through that as well so I would love for you to just go back to your childhood and talk talk a little bit mm -hmm. um what were your childhood was like and how you were raised and stuff like that well, it's first of all so awesome to be here with you, Margie, and to talk with you today, as it always is. It always feels like it's a privilege because we have kind of a mind meld, I think, you and I, mm -hmm. in a lot of ways. And we express a lot of the same ideas through different languages. Exactly. And I think that I think that's that's something that's really powerful. I think for me in my childhood, um, 
I had older parents, uh, and I have uh, a sister who's 20 years older than I am. Wow. We both, though, grew up like single chil- singles, children, singletons, yeah. even yeah. though we have a sibling. So I think those things affected me, being able to learn, talk to adults early, knowing how to communicate with adults, uh, having older parents that was, I was intergenerational early on. And then um, my family moved around a lot. My father mm. lost his business in the late 60s in the Rust Belts of Pennsylvania, and we started wow. to move to different places. So even as young as seven and eight, I had to like under, I was in an uncomfortable place. I had ripped from my family home and my cousins and nieces and nephews. My sister had children already. I was an aunt at five, you know, my niece. So, so, so I got out of my comfort zone early and was thrown into a mix of having to make new friends, having to go to a new school. Have, so it became second nature, I think, in some ways, that you had to swallow it, so to speak. And just like, if you wanted to survive, it's either drown or you swim. And yeah. I choose, I choose to swim. Wow. Isn't that the answer though? Choose to swim. You have a choice, right? You have a choice. Everybody has a choice. You can fall apart under the pressure, right? Or you can figure out how to move forward. And I, I didn't feel like I had a choice. Well, you do have a choice. You can melt or you can rise. And I, 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 felt like for me, I also was doing intergenerational interpretation for my parents who were already at that time. Today, it's not a big deal to raise children when you're or have children in your 40s, but it was pretty unusual then. Yeah. And so there was a lot of cultural interpretation as well. Mm. So that also is getting out of your comfort zone, right? You just kind of as a kid, you kind of go about your stuff, you do your thing. But then you're if you're having to be an interpreter of culture, that also is out of your own comfort zone. So I think those are mm-hmm. things that apply to what you've written so beautifully about. Thank you. You did. You grew up though in the South, right? Yes, I ended up. My family ended up with in Memphis, Tennessee. Wow. And what was it like then, growing up in the South? Uh, it was a really interesting. We had family there. My father had a first cousin that married somebody from Memphis, so we did have family there. So that wasn't that we weren't there all alone, so to speak, of being Yankees yeah. growing in the South. But, you know, I'm Jewish. It was this very small Jewish community, but a very tightly connected Jewish community. But, you know, in high school, there were clubs that they wouldn't allow Jews to belong to, mm. even in the public schools, which I went to. Um, so there was a whole other Jewish clubs and youth group gatherings and social gatherings that where I was very involved in because there were many clubs and organizations that excluded Jews. So from the beginning of time, you experienced prejudice. Oh, that was absolutely. Obviously. Absolutely. Overt anti-Semitism. I mean, I have memories of the Klan walking in their sheets Sunday afternoon down the main uh, main street in Memphis and Union oh. Union Avenue and and memories of you know this is in the 70s so it's just after Dr. King was murdered in Memphis so it, it was a city that's never recovered from that horrible moment um, and racial issues are a big are still it's still a big issue uh, in Memphis we saw that with the police beating of a young man who this last year um, that continued to play out in in Memphis life. Yeah, it must have brought in, I mean, I think, you know, we, we, of course, we're the product of our childhood so much in so many ways and can be helpful 
as well, because I, I bet you that's where you got your empathy. Well, it's that, I think from, I got a lot of empathy from there and I got a lot of empathy from my family, I think, um, had that opportunity to, to learn and grow. And I, I think, you know, when we just talk about, and I know you're going to talk about my book in a minute, but it's a really important story. And that is from my rabbi who was Rabbi James Wax of blessed memory, uh, was the rabbi. He had invited Dr. King to Memphis in 1968 because he was head of the ministerial interfaith ministerial association and there was a sanitation worker strike and the strike was for 10 cents more for the black sanitation workers who worked on the back of the garbage trucks the, there were white drivers but and they weren't allowed to ride in the front cab they also mm-hmm. made less money than the white drivers of the garbage mm-hmm. truck so they were mm-hmm. asking for 10 cent raise in 1968 mm-hmm. and rabbi wax had invited dr king to come and try and help settle and negotiate the sanitation strike with the city. And that's wow. why he came. And so then when Dr. King was assassinated in April of 1968, the day that it happened, my rabbi led a march downtown in the streets of Memphis. Already there were tanks in the streets and to demand the mayor do the right thing, which ended up happening. But this was my, he was part of my inspiration for what yeah. you could do to speak up on behalf of others who needed it who needed justice. And so when that was also an example of empathy, of empathy as well. Tremendous, tremendous. Well, I didn't even know any of that. That's such an interesting thing. I know when I was young, uh, I, I grew up in Florida, New York and Florida. And I guess it was probably, let's see, in the early 60s, maybe. I remember riding a bus going from, I was living in Miami Beach and taking the bus. And I maybe I was like nine or something. And I remember sitting that all the black people were in the back and all the white people were in the front. And I felt that the injustice of it at that moment. So I sat in the black and in the back with the black people feeling like, why shouldn't I be with them? Why are they not? So it's it's interesting in the very beginning how all that is formed. Now, you had an interesting thing to me was that you didn't grow up rich. You didn't you didn't have a lot of money. Not my family. I grew up in apartments by a railroad track. The apartment would shake every time. Oh. Train would come by. No, both my parents worked. I worked. I've worked since I'm 12 years old. And you said something that was very interesting. We had a, a terrific evening of um, for everybody. Denise is moving to Austin to start a new life with her beautiful wife and a wonderful experience and life is going to be for you. But we're going to miss you so much and. Uh, we did a uh, an evening, a farewell evening, and you never you said you never had a bat mitzvah party. At that, that's what you said. What What do you mean? What well, happened? When, when I, 1973 was I was the there was hardly any bat mitzvahs happening in my synagogue. I was only the third bat mitzvah in my synagogue, <clears throat> and we, we because we had moved there so recently. I didn't have the like what the most kids had. You know, I had a big party. I didn't have any real visitors. I had one out out of town guest, a cousin of my mother's came and it was just my, our family in Memphis. And so that we were in this big sanctuary that sat a thousand people and maybe we were 30 people in the sanctuary. And, um, you know, my, I did have a, a party, but it was like a luncheon with 12 kids on a riverboat. 
Oh, wow. <laughs> like up and down the Mississippi River for you know three hours, and a lady that played an accordion. So like you know, like a lot of kids have like a big celebration with lots of family members that come from out of town and cousins and all their friends. So I never, I, you know, I did that wasn't my family's ability, or yeah. in terms of people or finances, we just didn't have that. But you had it the other night, which is really nice. (laughs) We had a send-off. We did have a wonderful, there was a wonderful Wonderful. 30th anniversary celebration of the congregation that, Margie, you were part of helping to start, uh, founding it um, in West Hollywood, California. We had a 30-year gala. A big celebration was also my retirement dinner, if you will, as I transitioned to being uh, the day-to-day rabbi, congregational rabbi, to being a rabbi emerita. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's just, it's amazing. Yeah. I, I, it's amazing to see that. Did you always want to be a rabbi? When did you know you wanted to be a rabbi? Well, it's interesting. I thought I was going to be a cantor because I was a singer and song leader right. and I studied voice in high school and college at the beginning. Um, and I thought I would be a cantor, but uh, then I decided I'll just be a rabbi who plays guitars and sing. <laughs> sing. <laughs> You know, I you know, I switch as a need more, I think I needed more intellectual stimulation than than uh, being a voice major allowed me in college. You know, it was if you're a music student and you're those right. of you, those of your listeners who who were musicians and and went to school and got music like degree, my son, right, right, exactly like Michael did. You know, you have to be really. You know, it's music 24-7. Yeah. And yeah. I liked politics and I liked literature and I liked geology and sociology and languages. And so it, it didn't provide me enough intellectual stimulation. So I thought, well, I can be a rabbi who sings. Why not? And I have. Why not? I've been able to do <laughs> You have a beautiful voice. I always said, my God, you know, who needs a canton when we got you? <laughs> so Let's jump to uh, what I think is amazing. Once again, you were ordained in 1988. Yes. And I just cannot imagine how challenging it was to come out during that time, and especially during the, the AIDS crisis that was killing all these young guys and the young gay guys. It just I'm, My heart breaks when I think about it. Can you just kind of tell us about that story that you, because you've been, you have been, you've lost so many people and you've had to deal with this horrible disease. Just tell us a little bit more about that time and how you and how do you deal with that kind of loss? That's what I'd like to hear about. Well, I think first of all, I mean, and I the first woman rabbi was ordained in 1973 in America's Rabbi Sally Prezan. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm not the first generation, but close, like mm-hmm. one and a half. So there still weren't a lot of rabbi women rabbis who were congregational rabbis. They a lot of Hillel taught on college campuses or in, in the parochial schools doing organizational work. But there weren't a lot of women rabbis who had their own synagogue. And when I was ordained in 1988, I came to, I by the Hebrew Union College, uh, Jewish Institute of Religion, I came back to L.A. because we had to finish in New York City. I started my rabbinical studies in L.A., finished in New York City, came back to Los Angeles to serve a congregation that was primarily LGBTQ at the height of the AIDS crisis, right? In 1988, mm. there still weren't treatments for, for people with HIV. We forget today it's a chronic disease and people have all kinds of, of, of wonderful, life-saving, life-affirming treatments for HIV AIDS. But back then there wasn't. So I was a 28-year-old kid at a time when gay people still could not be ordained. You have to remember when I went to right. seminary 
at the Hebrew Union College, you could not be openly gay and be ordained. We were closeted. We had a, I started a secret group. Wow. No, under- really? Yeah, I started a secret Talking about under- fucking your comfort zone. Right? Oh, God. We would, we would we, we, you could be kicked out of school for being wow. gay in those years. So for me to take a first job at a synagogue that was primarily for LGBTQ people, was a pretty risky at 28. In fact, one of the main leaders of our movement, Reform Judaism, said to me, don't take that job, Eger, you'll never work again. Wow. Because I was out basically outing myself. Now, in 1990, I came out publicly in the LA Times in a big article because we were our denomination was debating whether they should ordain openly gay people as rabbis. And that was really fuck your comfort zone, to be honest yeah. with you. Because it was, I was risking pretty much everything at that time. So, so, but we needed to give a face to, to the cause as it were. Um, yeah. And it won. And we, and we passed it. And since 1990 in the reform, in reform Judaism, gay people can be openly gay, rabbis, cantors, teachers. It's not an, it's not an issue. Um, and for same thing as in those early age years, you know, nobody trained me in the onslaught of the amount of funerals I doing, that's all I did. My first five yeah. years, the rabbinate of being a rabbi, I just, all I did was go to the hospitals and visit people and help people die with dignity and deal with their families. It, it was a really horrible time. And I don't, I think the only thing that, that maybe your listeners could compare it to, especially who didn't live through those yeah. years like, yeah. Like when I did, when we had whole pages of what we used to call our address books get wiped out of friends and, and family members, chosen family, is the first few weeks of the coronavirus yeah. pandemic. When we saw bodies build up in hospitals and morgues set up outside, that's what it was like for those of us that lived through those years. Yeah, you know, you mentioned that because that's um, one of the things that I was thinking about is that how interesting the whole thing is when it comes to there's 6 million uh, people that died, uh, Jewish Jewish people that died in the Holocaust. There's 6 million approximately people that died in the coronavirus. There are, and then how similar this whole thing is to the AIDS uh, stuff. I mean, it's just amazing how this whole thing, and I remember the quilt. I remember, what what year was that when the quilt, when they the made the quilt? Year, the first year that they put the quilt, that Cleve Jones had this idea for putting up the quilt, making a quilt pieces. It, it was unbelievable. In the year 93, when they laid it out on the National Mall, it went from one end to the other. Uh, you know, it's too big to display all in one piece now. Yes, uh, yes. They make the, the National AIDS Memorial quilt. You can't, it, it's impossible. There's That's how many quilt pieces there are. So, I mean, Margie, that's yeah. exactly this. The similarities that you point out Phenomenal. between the coronavirus and the HIV epidemic, a pandemic, yeah. exactly why Reverend Neil Thomas and I wrote this book of seven principles yeah. of living bravely, because he also had ministered during that time. We've known each other for more than 20 years, did a lot of social justice work, LGBT activism together. And we were talking at the beginning of how we were going to change, have to pivot to make our congregations work during this time of great fear. And we started talking with each other about how much it reminded us of those early years of the AIDS epidemic pandemic. And this is how, how the book actually got started. Yeah, I was going to mention that later, but you mentioned it now. And it's quite something that the two of them, but I'm going to continue on that. I just want to uh, 
And we're going to get back to that because it's a whole thing I want to talk about that. And by the way, I was at the AIDS. I saw the AIDS quilt, the football field. I'm wondering when it was in California. When oh, was it then? At different times. At different times. Yeah. In the early days, I was there. I mean, it was something else. Everybody, I want to say to all of you, too, that is an amazing experience that you never forget when you see all these pieces of quilts sewed sewed together. And uh, it was a wow. But to a more positive, well, that was beautiful in its own right. But to a positive thing, I wanted to talk about what you do on the other side of death. There is the thing called marriage. Yes. And you were you were the first rabbi to marry the first gay couple in San Francisco in 2008. Wow. And right. then you married Susan and myself, by the way. Yes, I just of course. want you to know. And all of our friends. <laughs> well, you know, we was very active in the marriage equality movement um, in California and nationally. Um, actually, Reverend Thomas and I founded here in California. He was a pastor in L.A. at the time. Um, we founded uh, California's Faith for Equality, which was a statewide organization, organizing organization that connected clergy and leaders of religious communities to fight for marriage equality. Because you have to remember in uh, 2008 in California, the Catholic Church and the Mormon Church put in more than $40 million dollars to take away the right to marry. Remember the Supreme court in California gave the right to marry in the spring of 2008 on June 16th, 2008, I married one of the plaintiffs, the first couple in the Beverly Hills courthouse steps, Robin Tyler and Diane Olson had sued <laughs> and to in front of a bank of cameras with Gloria Allred was their attorney. Um, I remember. And we would go every year. We would go to the, County registrar, and they'd ask Diane and 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 um, Robin would ask for a marriage certificate. They would be denied. Finally, they sued. They won, and yeah. then the Catholic and Mormon churches raised money and got a ballot initiative in California for that November of two thousand and eight. The same time Barack Obama was elected, and to take away the right to marriage. Now that summer of, we called 2008, the summer of love, Margie, kind of like coming <laughs> back to those woods fears. I did more than 60 weddings between June wow. and November that summer. People wow. rushed to get married because we had the opportunity. And yeah, then the small window, that small window, November 4th, 2008, the proposition passed. And so then there were no marriages again. Yeah. 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 Devastating. That was devastating. 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 I do remember I was in Temple uh, and we were talking. I don't know what we, well, you were talking about gay marriages and blah, blah, blah. And you said, so who is going to get married and stand up if you're going to get married? Everyone's looking at me. Are you going to stand up, Margie? Are you going to stand up? <laughs> and that was when I had to get married because I had no choice. You mentioned it. And I had to stand up and say, yes, I'm getting married. <laughs> you know, it, it was, it's it's quite an amazing thing. I'm, I don't know if anyone who's listening has ever been to a gay wedding, but, you know, we all take these things for granted because the freedom that's been given to everybody has been, anybody can get married. And now it's it's taken so many years to realize, to appreciate that we are equal when it comes to to being getting married, and and that was a lot because of people like you who fought so hard. And it's it's how amazing how an individual can make a difference. You've made such a difference, an individual, one person. Uh, the other thing I want to talk about is that you became the first openly LGBTQ president of the Central Conference of American Rabbis in 2015. And I was kind of curious about 
was there a lot of prejudice that you had to get through? How were you received? Because I know you had to have a bodyguard or something. Well, that was a really interesting story. Yeah. I, well, see, this is, I, as I, as we've talked about today, I, you know, I've had this uh, arc of working for LGBTQ rights, not only state and national and the civil area, but also within the re- religion. I've worked very hard for acceptance of LGBTQ people within Judaism and kind of led the march, as I talked about earlier, with coming out in 90, 1990, uh, publicly so we could pass resolutions for ordaining, but there's other things that have to happen. So I've including, including getting the rabbis in 2000 to say that they, we would bless gay marriages before there was gay marriage. Yeah. That's a big deal. So I, I think one of the things that is important is that by the time I became president, we had just, we had gone through and made a lot of difference and made policy of Reform Judaism to be fully inclusive and celebratory of LGBTQ life, including in when I became president, we passed a, a resolution around transgender rights and transgender people of welcoming, including supporting, advocating for. So by the but what happened, this is a great story. When I, the morning I was going to be installed in a ceremony uh, in front of the entire convention, which took place in Philadelphia, of all places, <laughs> a phone call at 7 a.m. And here I'm thinking it's Ben, my son, uh, calling and say, okay, Ema, where do I have to be? Mom, where do I have to be? At what time? Because he was there. And it was, a, I pick up the phone. It was a death threat. Some crazy dude. I have no idea who he was. Basically telling me he's coming to kill me this morning. And at that point, we had security protocols in place. So I had a security bodyguard the whole convention. And we wow. had rooms under an assumed name. Um, it was really scary. It yeah. Really well, scary. talk about scary and how things have changed. And you mentioned transgender. Boy, have we taken the backward movement in that. It's so upsetting to me. Um, why do you think that that people fear trans people so much? What is it about that that makes it so difficult for people to accept them? I, I think, think, well, first of all, I think this is a political move to reignite a culture war. We've seen culture wars before by the Republican Party. Um, and, uh, you know, we, if we go back to the 80s, Pat Robertson, the moral majority, Jerry Falwell, yeah. uh, from my perspective, the, this is an old Republican playbook of, mm-hmm. of going against LGBTQ people. Right now, it's, it used to be lesbian and gays. Now it's trans people. Um, yeah. But <clears throat> as a human issue, human beings think their own experience is the way it is. So Margie, your way you live your life, you think everybody, that's what, what do you, that's the most natural thing. But the truth is there is such diversity in nature, both among the animal kingdom and in humanity that our individual experience are not exactly the same. And so when we come to trans people, if you are someone who is cisgendered, meaning you are comfortable in your gender, not your, I'm not yeah. talking about sexual orientation, talking about gender, gender and gender expression, you you think everybody should be. But that's not the case for transgender people. And it's a very tiny minority of the population that is being harmed and attacked. And here's the thing that I think your listeners really need to remember. 
if they can do what they're doing to transgender people in this country, making it illegal to get medical care, to go to the doctor to get the care that you need, well, who's next? And this yeah. is the same group of people that taking away the right to choose uh, on abortion care and reproductive care for women. It's all about your body. Body autonomy is what the concept is called in the legal world, that you have a right to take uh, to be the over your own body right. and make your own decisions about your body. And they don't want you. They want to control you. And this is the worst, worst of white Christian nationalism that wants to foment their theology. It's it's a very dangerous time in our country yeah. and around the world because it's not just here. There's other dictators, Trumpian-like dictators yep. in other places as well. Boy, it's so so well said. You know, I it's interesting for me. I did, uh, I don't think I told you the story, Denise, but I, in my class, I had a student of mine who uh, was up for a movie. She booked the movie. And uh, the movie was, and this is, and then I worked with her on the movie. And this is what it was about. She, the, she's a wife. She comes home to look for a husband. She can't find her husband. She looks all over the place and he's not there. And all the things that he had were gone, like the pictures, the rings, everything. So she's starting to panic. What's wrong? What's wrong with her? I mean, did she imagine this whole thing? What's crazy? And then she finds she, he was an author. And he wrote, he wrote uh, in the preface was a woman named Eve who wrote the preface. So he, so she looked around and tried to find Eve and finally she finds Eve and they have this amazing connection together. They don't know what it is. It turns out that Eve is the transgender of her husband. Oh, that's it. Yeah. So he had been, you know, and this is, this is a a story that, but so what happened is, and, and it was amazing movie. Cut to, I asked my the guys in my class that they should all live the life of Eve, which meant that they'd have to come in the following week, having created the life, and be Eve. So all the men came in, and not one man was wearing a dress when Eve loved dresses, the character. So I said to this guy, one of this guy, Michael, I said, Michael, you know, you're so talented. What, what, why, why are you not wearing a dress? Well, I didn't think it was necessary, really. Uh, so they're all kind of moving away that would be feminine, but they had no concept. I'll tell you what I want you to do, Michael. I want you to go with your, he's Asian. I want you to go with your wife and I want you to go buy a dress, an Asian dress and go into a store. And I want you to keep it on for the whole week. So he goes into this Asian store, buys this long dress, very you know beautiful long dress. And he wears it all week and he doesn't take it off. And he start, goes to a drugstore wearing the dress goes out for dinner, and all of a sudden, here's what happened. He started feeling shame. He understood the shame that people were looking at him and how weird it was for him. And he started to understand core-wise what it's like to be looked at as a freak. And so he then wanted, is the difference, he wanted to wear a wig. So he put a wig on. He wanted to put makeup on. He 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 even shaved his legs, and you couldn't even see his legs all because he started to own what it was like and the need and the desire to be in the understanding to be in the wrong body, having empathy. I came in the following week, they all came in. I saw him. I did not, Denise, I did not recognize him. That's the commitment. And to me, the only way people can understand, you cannot be an actor and have any prejudices. You have to look at your prejudices, even though you may not even know that you're prejudiced. 
it was a prejudice. They were, it was fear to go all the way to live the life. And I think that's what is uh, to me. America has recently undergone uh, the permission to have toxic masculinity be the modality. And I, you know, for men in particular, um, you know, there's, you know, actors have to express their feeling, right? Yep. And you have to have to have that empathy, as you said. And, you know, that's not okay when you're, it's toxic masculinity. It's all about aggression and violence. And so the, it affects our whole society. So when you're asking someone to be that vulnerable and to be open about their emotions and to be able to express their emotions, it goes against type of what we're being told is the, you know, the right way for men to behave. And that's just, there is no right way for men to behave. That's the reality. Yeah. We yeah. have to really fight hard against all of these messages, both subliminal and overt that are coming through the media today that affects everything we do. Yes, totally. I want to get to the book now because I could talk for 10 hours because we have so we, we, you know, uh, what's great is Denise has been staying at my house and we have talked maybe 10 hours. We have every day. Every day. I've been loving it, but let me, I'd like to talk about the book. I, I, I read it. um, I loved it. I was so happy to meet uh, Reverend Dr. Neil Thomas at your farewell party. What a mensch of a guy. What a mensch. If those are not Jewish, means a good guy, a really good guy. Uh, and I love this book and the way it brought these two, you, you two wonderful people together. Uh, I wanted to, well, first of all, I just want to say that for all people, it's not, you don't have to be religious to read this book. All right. I'm not religious. And I can say to you, that these principles apply to life very much like my book does. And uh, I, I'm, I'm going to see if I can remember in order the seven principles. So here I go. Morning, truth, rest, love. Don't tell me. Prayer, joy. And I love the fact that it ends with hope. Yes. And I just, I just thought, Boy, does everyone need to read this stuff? So I'm going to go through a little bit of each, and I have my your book with me to try to talk to, to you a little bit about it because we did talk about some of this stuff about the quilt and stuff. But how I was very fascinated by the by the concept of mourning and how important and what what the Jewish people what we do and how we mourn and how important rituals are. Can you elaborate on that for us, especially with the coronavirus pandemic about right. this? Well, that, this is this is what this book, even though it was written by a rabbi and a pastor, it's kind of like a bad joke. A rabbi and a pastor walk into a bar. It's kind of a bad joke. But but it is kind of that kind of conversation. And it, these are really spiritual practices. This is not just, this isn't about religion. This is about spirituality, even though we're both religious leaders uh, in, in our respective yeah. faith traditions. This is mm-hmm. not a mushy book. We both wrote in our authentic voices, but we really tried to look at what was ancient wisdom for just kind of living everyday life, right? And and so I think for the morning, we, particularly in our society, we, you know, we don't say he died. We say, oh, he passed away or they, she passed on or she went on to a better life. We don't really confront the fact that someone was living and then they stopped living. They died. Mm-hmm. And yeah. we, it's not just the the coronavirus pandemic really brought that to a fore. People have not dealt with it. There are hundreds of thousands, millions of people around the world who have died because of this. And we have not stopped to grieve and to mourn. And people need rituals. I, 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 
I have met so many people because so many people are not religious anymore. They don't belong to a faith tradition or have a spiritual practice that they're just so distraught. They don't deal with their grief when someone dies and rituals help us move through that trauma, that grief to be able to come to some kind of peace around an acceptance of the fact that the person died. Yes. It's such an important chapter. Uh, and so for everybody, uh, they alternate. Um, so Denise wrote the first chapter, but you're involved in all the chapters. Oh, yeah, I mean, we, we both we just we, talk we, about we, it. But the, but you wrote specifically because the next chapter that was written by Neil, um, which is on truth, I thought was very, I think about from my book, um, Fuck Your Comfort Zone, I always talk about you have to look at your own truth. Yes. And that's what my book is. Look at your own truth about what makes you tick and what makes. And so when when are you a rescuer? When are you a victim? When are you a persecutor? Looking at your own truth about how you treat other people uh, and how you are to yourself. So I found that very. And what is why is it so difficult for us to look at our own truths? Do you think? Because denial is a big deal, right? It's a big river in Egypt, denial, right? (laughs) That's what we used to (laughs) say. But but but. But, you know, we, we we don't see ourselves clearly. We don't look in the mirror. I'm sure you do mirror exercises with your actors. You know, why do you make people look in a mirror? Because you have to really see yourself and you have to know yourself as an actor. And and this idea of what is your truth and to be able to speak your truth um, is is not easy. No. We have so many messages that that come to deter us, negative thoughts, negative voices in our heads that try to negate our truths. Critical parent. Yes. And then add on to society, right? You can't be this way. You can't dress that way. You can't live like this. And the ultimate liberty and freedom is in finding truth. Yeah. That's that really is. And today, truth is we know truth has been under attack, right? In the political sphere, um, you know, up doesn't, you know, just read George Orwell. We're living in Orwellian times, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, so so finding your truth is just really important. And in a Jewish tradition, we, you know, truth is actually a name for God. Mm. The Hebrew word, the Hebrew word emet, which is uh, three letters, Aleph, Mem, and Tav. It's the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. The last letter of the Hebrew alphabet is the Tav at the end. And the middle letter is the little middle letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So God's all-encompassing truth. It's Mm. true. God is truth. And, and, and so for uh, this, this notion of seeking truth and living truthfully is, is really important. And so important. You would say that you would say it differently, Margie. In your book, you would talk about living authentically, being yeah. your authentic self. Yeah, and that sometimes you have to fuck your comfort zone to do that, right? That's for sure, darling. Then you did a chapter which I um, really, it really hits home for. It's going to hit home for everybody who's listening uh, on rest. And of course, I love the fact that you start out with Anthony Newley, "Stop the World, I Want to Get Off." I saw that play. I saw that musical of in course. New York on Broadway but in the sixties or whatever it was. <laughs> yeah. And that's what a way to start that chapter, because quite honestly, um, we talk about how the pandemic caused us to have an imposed rest that we all needed and how hard it is to be silent. As you know, because we sat in my backyard, you were saying how lovely my backyard is to just sit there. 
that was imposed. I had no choice for three years but to sit there. And it was so quiet, Denise, no traffic. Yes. Only heard the birds were amazing. Uh, it, to me, you know, you you, you write about um, rest and that the Jewish Shabbat thing. I think it's an interesting thing for people to understand that. The Sabbath, the, taking a Sabbath, taking yeah. time out. You cannot appreciate all the things that you do, that you're in surroundings with, unless you have the absence of that. Right. Mm-hmm. So you need time to recharge. You need time to renew. You need time to rest. And our society forces us, especially gig economy actors. Right. Like you go from one job to another, to another, to another. You're lucky if you land a series or you land. Right. Exactly. But you're but, you know, so you're always on the go and you're always looking for where you're going to get the next gig. And it doesn't allow a lot of time for rest and renewal to refill your tank. Right. If you're giving out all the time, you have to have time to repair. And Jewish tradition, religious tradition has time out called the Sabbath. Um, One of my favorite books is by the great rabbi and theologian Abraham Joshua Heschel, 20th century, late 20th century theologian, who wrote a book called The Sabbath about that the Sabbath day, Shabbat in Jewish tradition, is a palace in time. It's not Mm. a palace that you build right? A house, a glory. It's a palace that you build in time to enter into, to glo- to to exult in. And we don't think about time that way. We just think about it as another commodity. So true. I, it's so true, true. As you're talking, Denise, I'm thinking about how when I first moved here in LA to live with Mary Wilson from the Supremes and every we knew how to hang. We used to hang out. Uh, true, we smoked a joint, lots of joints, but we hung out, but we still hung out. We kind of didn't, it wasn't like we, those days were like 30 hours in a day. My life since then has been constantly, constantly moving. The opportunity to just be silent and breathe and rest. And boy, did we experience that in uh, something good came out of the pandemic from that. It was. And I think there's, that's part of the great, been a great shift for a lot of people is they, that they never experienced that slowing, stopping. And there's been such a shift in the way people work, wanting to remote work, wanting to have time with friends and family, wanting to carve that out. And then that's part of what we've seen. And I talk a little bit about about in this book about, you know, what they call, what they're calling the great resignation, people quitting jobs to retool, to move, to to learn it. And I, I guess I wanted to say one more thing about this rest notion. There's a reason we're called human beings because we're supposed to just be, we're not supposed to do all the time. Mm. We're not human doings. We're human beings. And we've in a capitalist society. We've forgotten about that because the emphasis is on doing more, producing more, being more, getting more, 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 rather than saying, Oh, it's sufficient. It's sufficient. That is so helpful for me. That's something that really I needed to hear. And I, and I appreciate that so much. On to chapter four, which is love. I mean, what can we say? We need love now more than ever. And uh, I love the concept that Neil talks about giving love. True love is when we offer up our time and gifts when it's difficult to do. Right. And it is difficult sometimes. It is hard to love some people. Some people, it's very hard to love. Right? <laughs> Especially in this polarized society, it's so hard to love some of those people. But, you know, we in the South, we say, bless her heart, you know, when that's yeah, kind yeah. of... But but you do have to try and figure out where how to come from that place yeah. uh, uh, of love and respect and appreciation. Um, 
And, and that's right. transformative, transformative. It is. Um, so <clears throat> I want to go to number five. And I wanted to uh, do a little reading here for you um, for chapter five, prayer on page 69, um, which I thought was just pretty interesting line uh, that you that you write, Denise. And it is the uh, there are no atheists in the foxhole Mm -hmm. describes the need for faith courage and overcoming fear in a time of deep crisis, turmoil, and specifically war. And I just wanted to say that what I found interesting is when you think of prayer, it's not necessarily sitting by the bed and putting your hands together, which is, I think, what sometimes turns people off. Yes. I mean, when my mother was dying, um, I... I knew she was. It's like this thing I talked to you about. You kind of know for whatever reason there's some con- connection, right? And I knew that she, I was supposed to leave the following day. And I was walking my dog, Monty. And I had that unbelievable belief that at this is the last moment she was going to be alive. I called and Lois answered the phone. She said, Mom's taking her last breath. At that moment, Denise, I fell on my knees and I prayed to God. I said, and I mean, it was, I mean, moving to this moment, I said, please, God, take my mom and mom, you'll be okay. You'll be with Aunt Sylvia, Uncle Cy, and and I will be there someday with you. And this came out of the gut. It didn't come out of the thinking. It came out from that. And that to me was my moment of understanding prayer. Right. I think you, I think that's so powerful, Margie. And I think that's what we have to understand that there's look every religious traditions have some prayers that you know are, are what we call fixed tradition and that you say them in a certain way the rosary uh judaism has a million brachot blessings but there's also inspired prayer prayer that comes yeah. from the longing the needing the things we need to say sometimes not just to god but to ourselves right in jewish yeah. tradition prayer isn't just praying to god it's also um it comes from the word for self-judgment, actually. So, so you know, it prayer kind of takes our minds out of our own self-interest and mm. helps us to see the world in a diff- particular way. And prayers aren't always about please fix this. I want to be really clear. I don't. I don't believe in a God that just you know, that we're marionettes and God's a puppet master and, you know, just going to automatically fix everything in my life. Uh, I have to fix things in my life. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. And sometimes when I able to articulate it to God, it gives me the courage to go out there and do it. Um, And made me be more open to receiving help from others to help me do it. And we don't ask a lot of times. We don't ask. I know that's certainly my issue. I don't ask for help when I need to. Yeah, and it takes a lot for me to ask for help, a lot, because I think yeah. I have to tough it out. So prayer, <clears throat> that way, is you know sometimes it's the anguish, sometimes it's the sorrow and grief, as you said, something that's wanting to bring comfort, and you did to not have your mom suffer anymore, right? It's that long drawn out. Um, so prayers have it's not just prayer in a religious sense; it's really this longing of our hearts to for deep expression. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I I just loved it. And I just thought that it really affected me. I took everything 
and I look at it my own personal way. Uh, then you, you did a chapter right after that, which of course I love that because joy, joy to the world. Yes. Joy is something, it's just a beautiful word alone. And on page 82, you mention when we individuals pursue compassion toward our fellow human beings, we bring an added measure of joy to the world. So yeah. that was right. I mean, think about it. I mean, the world's a tough place. It's hard yeah. out there and it's easy to get caught up in all the sadness and the headlines and the horror and the tragedies. But if we don't have an attitude of joy and rejoicing, it's not a world that I want to be in because it's going to be very, very dark. So in Judaism in particular, it's actually, we're commanded to be rejoiceful, joyful. I mean, it's hard. Think about that. Like who commands anybody to be joyful? Because it's about having an attitude and in, in a mindset in the world, right? Yes. So beautifully said. And I also loved that when you talked about Norman Cousin saying, yeah. which I think is really interesting for me, I'll tell you why. Um it's a, he said, I made the joyous discovery that 10 minutes of genuine belly laughter had an anesthetic uh, effect and would give me at least two hours of pain-free sleep. So, you know, my sisters and I go traveling all over the place, Joan, Lois, and I. And wherever we go, this happens to us. We were in Africa, okay, Denise? You're supposed to be very quiet as the animals are coming in. Lois starts laughing. I start laughing. Joan, somebody, a belly laughs that cannot be expressed, that are so beautiful. It's those moments that I will always remember of, yes. of life. And then there's just a smallness I remember with my dad. He would sit in, he had diabetes, and he so it would give him depression. And he would put his hands by his mouth, and he would smile. I said, Dad, what are you doing? He said, it makes me feel better. And, of course, it releases endorphins so i just found that the joy chapter was quite something i think, I think that's i think their, your father knew it there's there's been a lot of studies that the more you smile the better your health is the more you dwell on the good the better your physical health is i mean like you know think so these are important for everybody to remember and and we don't remember them yeah it, it it's really is it, it's a it's um so much to to enjoy to really understand about joy and laughter and happiness in your book the last one, the last chapter, which, of course, I love the fact that you end with hope. Isn't that what we need now? I mean, well, what could be a better, better chapter, right? Oh, it's so appropriate now. And um, you, you, you know, you, you, you did mention on page 102, uh, you, you talked, uh, there are times when our vision of hopes will need to reset. Every moment of every day is an opportunity to plant hope in our lives. Yes. Every time we take a moment to do something kind for someone else, every time we dedicate an hour to be of service, every time we engage in an act of generosity, uh, it to me uh, to end with hope is just such a positive way. But I guess the question I have for you when it comes to hope, it's so scary out there. It's there's so much hatred. So many of our uh, our dehumanizing of transgenders, our threats to marriage equality, the attacks on women's rights for abortion. What can the listeners do to help bring back compassion and acceptance? Well, I think this is this is this is the challenge. Everybody wants to know what can they do, and this it, it all of this actually begins with 
person-to-person relationships, individual, and how we treat one another. Are you someone that walks into the grocery store ignoring the people that work there, or do you see them as as other equal human beings? Our, our society is so stratified, classified. Cla- we don't talk about class in America, but it is it is actually the big as big and bad an issue as race, right? And and we we treat people as nothings. And the truth is we have to start at that very core piece of seeing the potential in someone else. Mm. Judaism teaches that when I look at another person, I see the image of God go before me. Mm. And so whether it's the person behind the checkout counter or the truck driver or, or the oligarch, there's the image of God in every human being. And when we start with that, we start with their holiness, right? That to me is a way we begin to add back the fabric of humanity. The forces around us have been trying to fray our civic fabric yeah. and, and, and create a lack of trust in one another. And each and every person can do things that will help rebuild that fabric. You don't have to be grand. You don't have to join political parties. You don't always have to do all of that. But you do have to start to rebuild those relationships that we have with one another. Oh, so beautifully said. So it's, we had done a lot in this beautiful, I could go on for hours, but, you know, leave them with something because I just want to say for everybody, get this book. Obviously, I'm a big believer in it. Uh, I think it goes really well with Fuck Your Comfort Zone. I just think the two books match each other in its own way, in a different style, but quite the same. So. Uh, Seven Principles for Living Bravely. Uh, Amazon and on your Kindle and Spanish language version will be out soon. So watch that as well. So I want to end like I always end with, uh, because you've fucked your comfort zone your whole life. What advice, because we've given so much, but maybe a little pin, can you give to my listeners about fucking their comfort zone? What, What gem? Take a deep breath, hold someone's hand, and go for it. Woo! And we went for it. We Thank went. you so much, Denise. And everybody, please go ahead and enjoy your life. Live in a happy space and continue to fuck your comfort zone. I hope today's podcast inspires you to stay open, let go of control, be present, and above all, be kind to yourself. If you'd like to explore more of my philosophy in the studio, go to margiehaber.com. And if you want to purchase a copy of my book, Book Your Comfort Zone is available on Amazon. Stay tuned for our next episode.